Hi guys, welcome back to another episode after a long, long break. Hope you guys are doing well, and if you're new, you're listening to Show Me How to Do It, a podcast where we discuss personal finance-related topics that are super relevant to us millennials. In the next two episodes, we'll be discussing about buying houses. So keep listening if you want to learn a thing or two. Of us millennials usually think of buying our first house to live with our spouse when marriage is on the cards. In Singapore, in order to buy a resale flat, you need to be married or at least 35 years old and above if single. Although it's the most common, HDB is not the only type of housing you can purchase as a home. There's also private properties and also ECs, executive condominiums. Buying a home is one of the most significant financial decision and commitment you'll make in your lifetime. So it's best that you do some due diligence beforehand. Luckily, in this episode, we will be going through what exactly you need to consider before getting your first home. Let's welcome our guest today, Zuhdi. He makes real estate content on Instagram with the mission to help young buyers make wiser decisions when it comes to real estate. Let's welcome Zuhdi Farhan, also known as Urban Kaki on Instagram. So hi Zudi, thanks for coming here with us. Let's get down right to the questions. The most common question is, what are the things I should consider before buying a property or a home in Singapore? There's a lot of things that someone has to consider, and everyone always tend to go with the the motto location, location, location. But uh, honestly, there's so much more to that. Okay, because um, the most important thing I would say is for a person, a buyer to know what they want exactly. Because each property, it it serves a different purpose other than simply being just a shelter over your head. And that's the mistake I would say a lot of people make because they choose to, they tend to go with their emotions. They tend to go with something that's big, something that's a high floor and not really knowing the financial consequences of their decision, right? So for, I think for the first property, do you want it to be a stepping stone for your investment to help you retire earlier or do you want something uh, more luxurious? Uh, choosing something that helps you to be debt-free as fast as possible. So there's a lot of different angles, different strategies to go throughout. Uh, and also, what kind of lifestyle are you able to live? Are you a very frugal person or some, are you someone who likes to spend? So in other words, the most important thing to consider is really to know the purpose of buying this particular property because... Um, it's a very big asset that's going to have financial implications in the long run, in the short run and long run, all right? Okay, so actually I have um, real stories to share, but I'm going to change the names. It's a story of two homeowners who are, you know, the same age, same educational background, just uh, different property choices. First story is this guy, okay? Uh, let's call him Ali. He bought this four-room BTO in Chachukang at 265k back in 2016. So today, right, that's, uh, that's four years ago. Today, the value of that property has gone up to about 385 around there. So if Ali decides to sell the property, he makes about 120k cash profits and putting aside his loan and other fees, he would have gotten back around 150k in CPF. So this leaves Ali with $270,000, which is a huge amount of money. And he's also a step closer to being able to retire slightly earlier as he continues to build his wealth. But all this sounds really good. But of course, what we don't hear is that Ali on a day-to-day basis is not 100% comfortable because um, of his home. Okay, uh, the reason why I say that is because the BTO he chooses and generally for newer BTOs, 
um, it's in a location that's a bit further away from MRTs or public transportations and amenities as compared to resale properties. And um, also it's further away from his family and also the good schools are a bit further away and the and he got a low floor unit that makes thing at home feels a bit warm, feels a bit humid. So he suffered for five years, which is the minimum occupation period, staying in this house, but at least at least he made, you know, a huge sum of money from it. Alright, so that's the story of Ali. He bought a BTO, he made a huge profit, but the problem was he wasn't really comfortable living for that period of time. Next one is Bala. Okay, so it's Ali and Bala, right? Bala bought a property at the same time as Ali, which is 2016. He bought a five-room resale flat in the same area, Chajukang, at about $380,000. So from the get-go, he already, uh, Bala already fucked up more money. So today, right, because it's a resale property and he has been around for quite a while, the value of the property has dropped from 380 to 374,000. So this means that Bala effectively lost some money with his property purchase. And it's likely that the price will drop even further as the lease continues to drop. As the lease continues to deplete, then it gets less and less attractive to purchase the property so the value continues to drop. So there's a potential for Bala to not earn anything at all from the property and make a loss. And this property that he has has become a liability and it probably will affect his retirement in time to come. Um, a lot of people in Singapore, they use CPF to fund their property. The problem with that is when you use CPF, the, the purpose of CPF is actually for your future retirement sum. So when you take it out of your CPF and use it for your property, you won't let your CPF grow, but your CPF will continue to accumulate, you know, the more you use it to pay for your flat. So Bala is happy on a day-to-day -day basis, but he's losing money. But for Ali, he's not exactly happy living day-to-day, -day, but he's making a lot of money. So it really depends on what are you trying to get out of buying this property. I would say for your first home, this is my advice generally, is to always go with something that will build your wealth first, then go for comfort and go for something you like later on. Once you have money, then you can afford to lose money. If you are a fresh graduate looking to buy a new house, just got married, spending a lot of money on your wedding, you wouldn't want to, in, to be in more liabilities, right? And um, I would say a lot of people, when they buy a property, they have this mindset where oh, it's okay, like, I'm probably going to stay here for the rest of my life when it's their first home. Because, and, and I would say that's a, that's a very dangerous mindset. Yes, definitely. So uh, just to sum up um, how to choose your first home, it all depends on the purpose, whether you want it for the short term or the long term. And, it re and your advice is really important for the younger uh, couples who are looking for their first home to um, keep in mind that perhaps they want to aim for their home to be a source of um, making more money, building their wealth instead of thinking that their first home will be their last home because you you guys have to remember that your first home is rarely your last home like your first job is rarely your last job so even if you have it all in the first home i think that's really lucky right mm, yeah exactly sorry i've been a little quiet because like, i've been listening to the story like quite carefully and thinking about um you know stories from friends and like my own like personal opinion as well um so, according to you, most people actually don't stay in your first home. Um, it, it's very rare for people to do so, is it? I don't really have the specific data, but it's just from asking around the different adults that I know. So, most of them have moved from place to place. Yeah, I think it's quite rare. I mean, um, because my, my parents, uh, we've been staying in the same house since like I was a kid. But I think that we are just... 
incredibly lucky. Like we've been thinking of moving out, but like I literally live next to the MRT and the mall, and I think we lucked out. But I really don't think other people have the same um, situation, right? Um, so, so I think what you're saying is right. Most people wouldn't stay in the same home that they 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 purchase. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask you also, cause like, uh, one of my friend like you like you mentioned right, um, Ali. Ali is the one who like suffered a little bit, right? Because he's far from the amenities and everything. So I had a friend who actually um moved to Canberra. So like, it's a very new place, right? A few a lot of people are like moving there cause it's new and like, um, when she came like there wasn't even grab or anything because it wasn't even on the map. And like she suffered, but then now, right? There's an MRT built literally in front of her house. I'm just wondering, like, um, would you know, like, there is going to be an MRT being built later on? Because it seemed like she knew, but she was willing to wait, and it it, it wasn't a good location for a few years, but now it is. So, I'm wondering, do you know? This comes down to planning, urban planning. So, um, generally for Singapore. We plan the our our government journey plans ahead in terms of infrastructure about five to ten years ahead, and um, unless you are already staying in a property that's well developed um, around you, it is unlikely that things are going to change or be developed unless it's going to be announced in the master plan. So, um, for example, if you go to if you go to Tengah, which is the newest town currently, uh, Tengah, um, some of the plots. You can see already the MRT that's coming up, even though it's not being constructed yet. And in the August launch, if I'm not wrong, it's the August launch this year. You can see um, the different train stations that has not been built up yet, but it's already on the plan. So, for example, Bishan has one, which, if I'm not wrong, is the Thompson East Coast line. And um, the other line that people really need to know about is the line. Um, I forgot what it's called. It's the Chojukang line. The one that links Chuanjukang to NTU, that whole stretch. So that is going to have a huge impact on property prices. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, things don't happen really, really quickly. They usually have some sort of a plan um, five to ten years before. So when you buy a property, you also have to look at the plan that uh, Singapore has. I think that's a very good idea. Talking about Ali and Mala, um, oh my god, I cannot remember which one is it. Ali is the one who bought the BTO. Ali, like, he made some cash, right? But is it a guarantee, like, every time you buy a BTO, that it's gonna increase in value? Like, is it, like, for sure? You can't predict also how much that you're able to make, right? So, like, could he have suffered for nothing if he wasn't going to make that much amount of money? That is definitely a risk that comes with a property purchase. Um, that's true. Okay, so from the past data that I have, most people made money from their BTO. The difference is, um, if you compare, let's say, 20 years ago to maybe today, the profits that they make is, uh, is a lot different as the supply of flats come up. So the more supply of flats, the more choices people have and somehow with our population decreasing, um, people are going to see less and less profits. Alright, so that's one thing. Um, it's never a confirmed thing. It's more of a probability. And if you compare the probability of making money of a BT- from a BTO and a resale, it depends on a lot of factors. But one big factor that is a sh- pretty much a sure thing is a lease. So if you have something that's remaining 60 years lease versus a 99 year lease, 
the probability of the 99 years lease making money than the 60 years is highly likely unless the 60 year lease is going to be surrounded by brand new facilities uh, and things like that and also um, you the profits may not be as high also because the worry Singaporeans are very worried about that 99 year lease thing which I mean it makes sense so have buying a property with a very little lease is going to be very detrimental to you know your financial health and with the new rules for CPF that came in last year, the youngest buyer of the flat has to be has to cover has to have the lease cover him or her until ninety five. So if the flat left sixty years lease, right, probably the buyer is gonna be thirty five or older. But they can still buy the flat, just that they don't get the grant, is it? It's just that um, their loan and the CPF that they are able to use to buy the property will be prorated. What's the purpose of that, like? Of the, of the, they just want to make sure that people will have a home until the end of their like lives or something, is it? That's I would say that is one of the the thinking behind the implications because you wouldn't want to have you wouldn't want to outlive your lease. I think that's one of the scariest mm-hmm. things because at, probably when you reach that age, you'll be out of work, and your retirement income is probably very little. So the good way to look at it is that they're, they're taking care of you, making sure that you have a roof over your head if you reach that age. What would happen if uh, the lease has reached 99 years? Would it be like on block or uh, HDB takes back the house or what would happen? That's a good question. So for HDBs, right, only less than 4% of HDBs will be going through SERS, which is on block for HDBs. So, which means the 96% of HDBs, which is most HDBs, once the lease reaches zero, the whole block of flats is going to go back to the government and people who are still alive by that point, they will not have any assets to their name because the lease reaches zero. You can't, the value is nothing. Speaking about the price of the property, right, when you mentioned about lease and about the amenities around the house, uh, which one do you think plays a bigger role? Whether the number of lease left for the home or the amenities and where the house is located? Uh, which one plays a larger role in determining like how expensive the house is when you get to sell it back? Mm, okay, definitely location. Because if you compare, let's say, uh, 70 years like left 70 years lease in a good location in a mature estate versus a brand new 99 year lease that is really inaccessible in a new town for example like Tengah the one that in, that's in a mature estate will definitely be more expensive you can see it in the pricing of BTOs you can see it in the open market that is is a uh, location plays a more important role it's just if you're comparing um, apples to apples or if you're comparing extremes then things may have you know they may have uh, anomalies Building up on that, my next question is, when you're talking about areas that are inaccessible, for example, Tanga, I mean, at the moment, it's inaccessible. There are not a lot of amenities, but I feel like the government will eventually build up amenities in these areas that they are um, creating, right? So should that even be a cause for concern? I mean, in the meantime, people might struggle, but in the long run, everything is going to be new, right? They're going to have access to newer things compared to like mature estates. So So what a coincidence that you asked that. I have data right here. (laughs) Okay, so this is um, data that's released pre-COVID. 
but things may change, okay? So, by 2030, right, 8 in 10 households would be a mere 10-minute walk away from an MRT station compared to the 6 in 10 households today. So, uh, this is one of the posts that I did uh, last year, late last year. So, this really shows... One of the worrying things is um, how the premium of being near MRT will continue to be less and less um, in time to come. But it's a good thing when it comes to livability because you are always near public transport, whether it's a bus or MRT. Yes. And speaking of Tengah, um, Tengah is one of the places where I really considered um, getting a BTO there. Because, but the huge trade-off for many, many people and the reason why Tengah is still very widely unpopular today is because they will have to suffer for 10 years before they get an MRT. But... If you are someone who is uh, a long-term person, who if you are someone who knows that you can tahan uh, long-term for the greatest returns, right? Then I think go for Tengah because as new towns get as as new towns spring up, Singapore's uh, planning skill, planning capacity gets better and better. So eventually, this new town that's completely new, even though the risk is you um, is that unhappiness, that discomfort that you have to face for 10, 20 years, these towns will be better planned than the old towns of like Amokyo, uh, Tanjong Paga. There are different, different reasons, right? You said the, the important thing is like the purpose of why you're buying this property, right? Yeah. Um, and since being an Eastie and a proud Eastie, a lot of like my Eastie friends also, there's this thing where we think is the best um, and they are willing to fuck out like a lot of money just to say in like Tampines for example which although I love the East I don't agree with because um, I'm not quite sure actually what is the purpose of wanting to stay it's not really like oh I want to be close to my family it's just this perception that the East is the best I don't know maybe among Malays like it's probably because of food or whatever okay that's that's a really good question okay I'm a Westie since birth oops sorry <laughs> I didn't mean to insult um, <laughs> no, the West no. is not best <laughs> Okay, I'm so sorry to all the other Westies who may be listening to this podcast, but one day in Tampines, one day around Tampines Hub, and just being in, where we, oh my god, when I go on outings with my friends, when I go on dates, where do you want to go? If you don't want to go to town, because town is getting boring, right? Where do you go? You go to Jewel, go to Tampines Hub. The East is, is better in a lot of ways. The reason why, the reason why the East is so popular, uh, and Jurong is so popular is this, okay? Because, Singapore is going through this decentralization process. So last time, most of the amenities facilities is in the central area. So you have your CBD, you have your all your amenities, your facilities there, right? So, um, but then it's getting a bit too congested. So what we are going to do is we are having more, um, what do you call it, sub-regional centers, regional centers. So you have one regional center in Tampines, one regional center in Woodlands, one regional center in Jurong. So they are trying to split up people as much as possible and also this helps with you know working closer from home making your lives better right so uh, that's why you see in Tampines which which is something you don't really see very often which is you see you know there's a CPF building in Tampines there's banks in Tampines insurance buildings in Tampines you won't see that in for example Bedok you won't see that in for example Pasir Ris you see industrial in Pasir Ris but not really these commercialized areas and in Jurong um, you realize in Jurong East, you don't see a lot of HDBs in the, the core central Jurong East, but you see three giant malls, you see offices, you see hospital, right? 
Then in Woodlands, uh, Woodlands, I would say, is the newest of the three regional centers because most of it is commercial. But uh, Woodlands is something that is going to grow a lot in the next 20 years. So now the stigma against Woodlands is, you know, Woodlands is a very ghetto area. Woodlands is a very, you know, there's no property value there. But Woodlands has the benefit of being a waterfront area near Johor. There will be a new, you know, RTS um, transit system where you can go to Johor really quickly. And then the whole Woodlands area waterfront is going to be commercialized also. So the reason why the East is popular compared to the other regional centers is because they have that benefit of being next to Changi Airport. Yeah. So it's not a perception of just like, oh, Easties, we're just proud of it. It's, it, it. There's some truth to it because um, all the amenities is there. Like, But since you are saying um, Jurong and Woodlands are also being bu- built up, right? Because Anting Fong is new, right? In Jurong. Yeah. yeah, so people might move on from this mindset and try to move to the others areas as well if you think of the east you think of you know changi airport you know jewel um really exciting places but if you go to the west you know that's going to be twas they'll have all the factories there so it has that industrial kind of vibe so the vibe of the area is also important that's why no one really boasts about the west i'm from jurong and i smell like heavy chocolate (laughs) burned cabri chocolates <laughs> yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's a vibe thing for sure but yeah. I, I like but do you think it's worth like spending that amount of money if you look at the bto for tampanese last year it was i think 13 times oversubscribed okay then everyone kind of wants to be there um when everyone wants to be there the demand will be there and when the demand is there your capital growth your capital appreciation will be there you can command a higher price if you get a BTO in Japanese for, for example, 400, you can sell it for 600 five years later. And with more, sorry, with more foreigners coming in, um, you can generally see increase in prices because more people will want a property in Japanese because you can rent it out, rent it out to these foreigners for, for passive income. So the airport is a huge driver for, you know, uh, real estate also. So that's why you won't really see that in the West because there's no... Is, is really far off from the, from the airport. I would say it's the airport effect that's really strong. Uh, okay, let's go back to buying houses. So another question that we have for you is, when buying a house, right, does one need to consider the other debts that they have? Um, you know, like credit card debts, or I don't know whether you would consider student loans as debt also. And yeah, how would you answer that? Okay, for student loans, I really have to thank Mandaki for subsidizing my university fees. Thank you, Mandaki. Me too. <laughs> yeah, so when buying a house, does one need to consider that? Definitely, they do. And the good thing about being in Singapore is the fact that there are a lot of regulations to protect home buyers, especially, you know, in a financial sense. I sound very pro-government, but honestly, there's a lot of things that protect buyers you know, uh, especially first-time buyers, okay? So for MAS, right, which is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, they have inter- they have implemented a lot of policies to ensure that we don't overstretch ourselves financially and incur too much debt. This is a double-edged sword. Some people are not really happy with it, but actually the, the policy reasoning behind it makes sense. So the policy in question here is the TDSR, which is the Total Debt Servicing Ratio. So let me explain a little bit. Each person um, under this TDSR, right, cannot have total debt exceeding 60% of their gross income. So let's say my gross income is $10,000. 
um, you cannot have debt exceeding $6,000. That's 60%, right? Yeah, $6,000. So this includes your student loans, car loans, your mortgage, etc. There's a lot of uh, different debts that are considered in this 60%. So before you can even get a loan for your house, uh, the banks will have to check this ratio for you and you will only be able to get this loan uh, if you pass the ratio. And if you don't have a loan, it's very hard for you to buy a house because it is unlikely that someone has that amount of money to just uh, one shot pay for that house. On top of that, HDB ensures that your mortgage for your HDB flat or for your EC is not more than 30% of your gross monthly income. This is an additional restriction um, for you. Uh, a restriction and also something that's good because you know that when you're paying for your house, you're not going above this 30%. It's easier to control your expenses. Uh, do you think that um, there's a lot of misunderstanding or people are not sure of all of, the, of these things? Maybe they, they know about it, but they're not sure of the reasoning or they're not sure where to go. Because um, talking to our viewers, right, I was telling them about the 335 rule for like CPF. It's something that a lot of people said that they were not sure of. But actually, um, I think CPF has like posted about it before. Mm. Do you think that more can be done to like educate the public about um, why these policies are being implemented? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I would say there's a lot of good policies out there and there are a lot of policies... Um, they're out there that kind of makes you feel a bit more restricted. But in the end of, at the end of the day, the, the intention of the policy is to protect you. So one area of improvement I would say that our government bodies need to have is this sort of transparency and education and reasoning um, and conversation, I would say. This is the most important thing, conversation with people to tell them, okay, this is the reason why you can only withdraw your CPF at this age. This is the reason why we take so much from your CPF. This is the reason why um, you can only uh, have 60% debt even though you want to borrow more. We are, the, we are trying to protect you. And I think this transparency that has been lacking before um, led to a lot of problems today. Because I see personally, okay, especially when it comes to this whole GE period, right? Let's not get too political, but when I see posts on Facebook of people complaining about um, government take my CPF or things like that, uh, I'm not saying all of them are wrong. I'm saying that a lot of them, they generally don't understand the policy reasoning behind it or perhaps the reason why they got themselves into this entanglement in the first place is because of a lack of knowledge. But of course, uh, to combat that, the government has to be more proactive in terms of uh, educating these people. So um, I know that on social media, the, the government bodies, stat bots, they have been very proactive in posting infographics and things like that. But I think it can, be, it can still be better. For example, maybe it can come in a form of, I don't know, uh, more forums to discuss with people, get people more involved with the policy making. Uh, it's easier said than done. I, I'm sure they have their reasons why um, it's not the way it is. But yeah, I, I always think that it can be better. I think doing research, even for this episode, trying to, um, I mean, what you mentioned, right? What we're doing in, on Do It Right, and I'm sure with your clients as well, you know, you're, you're trying to educate others, even for us trying to get research. I don't know about you, but it certainly was difficult for me. The information mm. is all there on like the CPF website. Very convoluted. It's convoluted, it's boring, it's dry. But when it's actually, when we are discussing it, there's a lot that we can talk about. It's a lot that's quite interesting and it makes sense. So 
Mm. Maybe like you said, it should be like a conversation, a discussion as mm. to how yeah. people can understand these concepts better. I, I like what you guys are doing, which is, you know, to have these conversations and share it with people. And for me, myself, I feel that I, I champion more on education, on educating people, sharing more rather than just, um, you know, um, closing deals and stuff. Yeah. I think it's yeah. more important for people to make wise decisions um, with something that's so big. And I think if I manage to kind of help people with these big decisions in their life and help them 10, 20 years down the road, I feel that sense of fulfillment. And because I think Singapore, um, one of the things that that we that our system kind of is, is very top-down. We, uh, we kind of tell people, okay, you can't do this, you have to give this, this is your tax, whatever. Um, and, and it may have worked 50 years ago, may have worked 30 years ago, but today when people are being more, when people are more educated, people are more vocal, especially with social media, they want to, they demand um, an explanation, they demand more transparency. Yeah, yeah. transparency. I think when you said um, uh, you wanted to help people so that they can make better decisions, right? What do you think a uh, big mistake that people can avoid if they had known better? Like one common mistake or bad decision that you have observed? Okay, this is something that I would say even I myself uh, kind of fallen victim to it a little bit. It's because when we were younger, right? Okay, usually what happens is the moment you get married, then you already think about the house. So um, let's say you get married in 2020. Then you decide, okay, when you, you, you need a house. So when you look at the BTO and you look at, oh, um, it's going to take three years to construct and I have to wait three years after I get married, then I get my own house. That's a bit too long. So I'm just going to get a resale property because I don't want to wait too long for a house. That makes sense. Um, I mean, logistically, it makes sense. But if you really planned when you were much younger, for example, when you already have a girlfriend, <laughs> Then you plan, okay, okay, when do we want to get married? When we blah, blah, blah. Then you already know, okay, if we if we get a BTO now, we can get married in three years' time, then we won't have to wait too long for a house. Something like that. So planning from a young age is very, very important. So um, biggest mistake I would say is splurging on renovations and buying a depreciating resale property without much research. It's always the lack of research and splurging. It's always following your emotions, lah. Let's just put it as that. Following your emotions, not doing research. Okay, so our generation is pretty different. You know, like it's, it's with like COVID that is happening. There's no like stability in our lives. It's no guarantee that with a degree or anything that we'll have a good life, right? So I was talking to my mom about it and she like said, oh, you should just get a five-room flat. And I'm just like, but I'll be struggling to make payments. She's like, no, it's okay. You know, like have bigger space. Um... Do you think that it's also like pressure or like they want to prove something? I'm not sure. That they kind of yeah, yeah spend more than they can afford, I suppose. That's a really good point. Because um, now if you look at BTOs and condos, they are getting smaller and smaller. And I would say culturally, um, we like space. We like bigger houses. I think everyone prefers space. Lah. And we will never, I would say never, I dare say never, we will never get the sizes that we had um, 10 years, 20 years ago of um, resale flats. So um, when it comes to pressure, people always say, let, let's say let's say you get a BTO, right? Let's say, okay, let's have another two stories. 
one guy, one married couple got a BTO. One married couple got a big jumbo flat resale. Yeah. Uh, 700k versus 300k BTO, you know. So, when Hari Raya comes, you go to the BTO, then, uh, then you know, rumah kau macam kecil like, your house is very small. <laughs> then, then you feel like, alamak, yeah, did we make a mistake? Then when you go to, you know, the big house, you feel a bit, oh, look at the renovations, you know, it's so grand and everything. Like, wow, well, they really look rich, you know, they really like, look like they're living in luxury with, um, you know, open concept kitchen with, you know, glass, glass panels and things like that. Uh, chandeliers you know compared to a really tiny BTO the, the, the pressure is definitely there if it's not from your parents it's from your friends but at the end of the day you really need to be disciplined financially to know that okay I got a BTO because I want to you know build my wealth I want to hopefully retire early you know it's an investment it's my first home I want to make sure that I'm not losing money at the end of the day if you know what you're doing you're fine So we were talking about um, any financial mistakes when it comes to buying property, right? Are, are there people who forget about any other extra upfront costs when it comes to buying houses? I'm sure there's like a lot. Um, I mean, apart from renovations. Okay. It's, it's very complicated because there's a lot of things that you have to pay at different points in time. So what I did, this is kind of a plug, a little plug, is I created this thing called the Kaki Roadmap. Um, and the reason why I did this is because I myself am, am looking to, you know, purchase the property and really understanding the full situation of how much am I going to pay monthly, how much I'm going to pay at the start, all right? Uh, and if anyone who's interested who really wants to have a very clear breakdown to, you know, to the conservancy fees you have to pay per month, to the utility bills of how much Wi-Fi that you have to pay, how much is your aircon fees, um, hit me up. Okay, but otherwise, the biggest upfront payments is okay one the down payment for your house which is either 10% of the flat value or 25% depending on whether you're taking a HDB concessionary loan or a bank loan secondly is your buyer stamp duty which is a tax that you are paying on the stamping on the documents which would act as a legal document for your ownership and thirdly yeah the biggest upfront cost will be your renovation costs and um, unless you're taking a loan which I wouldn't recommend because the interest rates are really high, um, then this will be one upfront payment. So this is something you're paying at the start. And depending on whether you buy a resale or a, a BTO, um, it depends on how spread out it is. So most of the payments will happen um, for BTO when you sign the lease agreement or when you get the keys. But for resale, you are paying the bulk of it um, in a very short period of time, within the span of one year. I think the whole process of finding out what you have to pay and when takes, uh, you have to sit down and calculate. It's not like buying, um, how do you say, it's not like online shopping where you just, okay, I have this amount of money, tap, you buy. You really have to sit down and know, okay, I need this amount of money by this time and every month I need to set aside this amount of money for this particular time. Uh, my book is quite straightforward. It's an ebook you can get from my Instagram. It's called BTO IMI. So it's basically a start to finish kind of um, guide to help people um, who want to buy BTO. But for this roadmap thing, what it is, is a Excel sheet breakdown based on your own criteria. 
Okay, so thank you, Zudi, for sharing with us all of your experience and all your stories with um, what you've gone through with your clients. If anyone wants to know more about the Kaki Roadmap that Zudi mentioned, um, uh, there'll be a link on his um, Instagram, at Urban Kaki, right? Yeah, correct. So, um, thanks a lot, Zudi. Um, this will be the first episode in our two-part series talking about BTOs and buying your first property. If you have any questions, please send them to us and we'll get Zudi to answer them. And anything else that you maybe you want to have any parting words to for people who are intending to buy their first house? Think, yeah, before you buy your first house, you should listen to both episodes, this one and the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your support. Um, so that's it for Show Me How to Do It. As you mentioned, buying a house is a long process from negotiating a price to navigating home inspections. In this episode, we have gone through all the different factors you need to run through and to decide before buying your first home. Um, there's definitely a lot of planning that is needed. So we will always talk about the two biggest um, decisions that you make in your life. Number one is choosing your partner, which from our previous episode, we've talked a long, long time about. And second of all, is also to buy a house. Do you agree that it's um, the biggest decision that you ever make apart from your partner? Yeah, I think the partner is more important than the house. I mean, that comes first. <laughs> and then, of course, the house. Um, but, but, but the point is that you have to make a decision wisely. For that, you and your partner have to go through all the details and hire a financial advisor alongside a property agent. We'll discuss more in um, the next episode. So, we'll be a video versus resale. So, it's a classic di- dilemma for the first-time buyer. If you have any questions about that, um, just let us know. Alright, see you guys next episode.